0: Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the Sixties by Stuart Leviton, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the Sixties and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistoryorg WHS Press. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, and I'm happy you've joined us for a show that satisfies three of the criteria, as we mark the Jewish High Holy Days with an encore presentation of our conversation from April 2020 with Jonathan Pollack. History Instructor at Madison College and Honorary Scholar at the George L. Massey Lawrence A. Weinstein Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Wisconsin, which last year issued his new book, Wisconsin, The New Home of the Jew, 150 Years of Jewish Life at the UW-Madison. It's available both in a paperback of about 150 pages and a free PDF download from the CGS website, that's cjs.wisc.edu. John is also the co-editor with Jonathan Reese of The Voice of the People, primary sources on the history of American labor, industrial relations, and working class culture, which includes some of the scholars discussed in this new book. John has published several articles on the Jewish history of the Midwest, and he is a frequent guest on Wisconsin Public Radio. He had the advantage of attending two of the three best schools in the Big Ten, getting his bachelor's at Michigan in 1990, then his master's here in 92, and a doctorate in 1999. And of particular interest to music lovers, from 1997 to 2002, John played drums for Madison's most renowned klezmer band, Yid It was a pleasure to welcome Jonathan Pogg to Mass in BookBeat last year, and another pleasure to present him again now. Start by explaining the title and where the phrase the new home of the Jew comes from.
1: Yeah, so uh, so it comes out of a, uh, an article uh, in 1930, a newspaper article in the English language supplement to uh, the Forverts, the nation's largest Yiddish newspaper, um, in, in 1930, as the book talks about, and as I've talked about in, uh, in other talks around Madison, uh, in 1930, the UW was in the middle of this uh, kind of wave of anti-Semitism that um, Jewish students had been, uh, Jewish fraternities and sororities had been excluded from Greek life in general at UW. Uh, Jewish students had limited housing options on campus. And um, it seems like there was uh, pretty open tensions between Jewish and non-Jewish students around the university. So in the middle of all that, a Jewish student at UW, a man uh, named uh, Nathan Leichman, uh, who was a UW student from uh, Providence, Rhode Island, um, sort of freelanced an article to the forwards about the situation at Wisconsin. That Wisconsin was uh, kind of nationally known by 1930 as a university that had like a large, up-and-coming Jewish population. Um, and so he wrote about the situation there. Um, and in the, uh, in the close of the article... Uh, Leifman wrote, uh, if Wisconsin is to be the new home of the Jew, then the president will need to pay attention to what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And uh, that for the title of the book, I mean, as I was writing it, uh, it, this book took several years to write. It was a long and and anguishing effort. Um, And at every step of the way, uh, my, uh, my editor um, constantly was uh, was kind of saying, well, you know, if you had a title for the book, that would help you kind of organize. Things. Like, yeah, the title, title, title. And then finally, I realized that was it. That um, that really that if you're talking about um, what I liked about it was first of all the the kind of juxtaposition that um, you know when we think of uh, Jewish history in the long term and the different homes of Jewish people over the years, Wisconsin generally doesn't make the top hundred. Um, So to have that title in there, I thought was kind of an eye catching thing, Uh, but also that's, the you know, for for any sort of college campus, as I did in, in my research on on Wisconsin and Jewish organizations here at this university. And for people who've looked at Jewish life at other universities, the part of the idea of a university, um, especially in an age where students were expected to all live on campus and be between the ages of 18 and 22 and coming basically directly out of their parents' homes to somewhere else, was that the university was supposed to be a home. Um, And so, uh, so that's where I felt like, oh, home of the Jew, the new home of the Jew, that's where that title really came together.
0: Now, the reason why Wisconsin became one of the new homes of the Jew was because of some overt, explicit institutional anti-Semitism at places like Harvard and and the rest of the Ivies. Explain how we can thank Harvard President Lawrence Lowell and the other Ivies for this tremendous welcoming that Wisconsin gave the Jews.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, so Harvard kind of started this in the early 20s and and other universities kind of followed that, uh, that Lowell looked around. At those, so I, I should back up a little bit and say that by like 1920, um, I want to say roughly like 25% of the students at Harvard were Jewish, um, that uh, Harvard in particular was like a magnet for uh, Jews of college age who lived in the Boston area, which was a, a major, major Jewish community um so uh so uh, uh, kids with uh, with big academic dreams had like Harvard right in their backyard commuting distance from where they grew up uh in Chelsea and and elsewhere um and so uh, so Jewish students went to went to Harvard in, in huge numbers uh and in the early 20s uh, uh Lowell said well if if Jewish students continue coming to Harvard Harvard will not be Harvard um, that that the character of Harvard would change; it, that it would not be, uh, it would not have the sort of Puritan roots that the the, the college was developed with. Uh, and so, what he did was he said, uh, and this is kind of a a, a masterstroke in in indirection. Uh, so what he said was, well, we need to make Harvard like g- more geographically diverse. <laughs> And so we're only going to take a certain number of students from from Boston. And within Boston, we're only going to take a few students from like Dorchester and Roxbury and, and Chelsea, like the Jewish neighborhoods of that time. Um, so, so all people across the Boston area can can be part of it. And then across the United States, kind of the same thing. Um, so once he said that, and it was what it was understood by Jewish students uh, at Harvard and Jewish alumni of Harvard to mean that that he was going to exclude Jews. Um, most of the other Ivy leagues followed suit with the exception of the University of Pennsylvania, um, and colleges that kind of aspired to Ivy status like Amherst, Williams, et cetera. Many of them also followed the same kind of cue, um, across the country, even major public universities kind of did the same thing. They kind of said, Oh, well, if Harvard can do it, we want it. We're trying to emulate Harvard and we'll sort of do the same thing. Uh, so what Wisconsin did was they sort of counter-programmed. Um, starting in 1926, uh, UW started the experimental college, which was like a a college within a college, like a small liberal arts school on the UW campus. Um, and they did this as a way to kind of market to Jewish students who are closed out of Harvard, who are closed out of the other major private universities in the East, uh, that maybe they'd consider Wisconsin.
0: And I think the other brilliant stroke that Lowell and the others, put on this was it was for our own good, because if there are too many Jews there, we're, we're pushy, we're too aggressive, we work too hard, we're too smart, we're going to embarrass all the goyim, and we're going to generate more hostility and anti-Semitism. So it's for your own good that we only keep you down to 10%. Yeah, or so. Right,
1: right.
0: Yeah. Now, now talk about what kind of anti-Semitism. So we've got this best of both worlds. We're, we're recruited here in the 20s, but we're also facing all sorts of institutionalized anti-semitism talk about what yeah some of the anti-semitism
1: right. was so, so the institutionalized anti-semitism I mean given pardon me given what existed elsewhere UW was was really pretty open to Jew, well, UW was very open to Jewish undergrads uh, so for undergrads coming here, UW was was super receptive. I mean, the experimental college was there. UW was the site of the second Hillel Foundation in the country, Um, growing number of Jewish fraternities and sororities in the 1920s. So all these things would attract Jewish students. And and I feel like a lot of that was legit. Where Jewish students ran into institutionalized anti-Semitism on campus was in campus employment Um, that um, the the small but growing like ranks of university staff. Uh, the UW didn't hire Jewish staff members. Um, so there was an incident in 1926 where uh, a student named Alex Stern from Milwaukee had uh, worked for, um, for uh, uh, M.S. Dudgeon, uh, for whom Dudgeon School is named here in Madison. Uh, he had been uh, a librarian in Madison. He was a librarian in Milwaukee. So Stern worked for Dudgeon, and at the end of the summer, he asked Dudgeon, or during the summer, he asked Dudgeon to write him a letter of recommendation so he could continue working in libraries at UW. And so Dudgeon wrote him a letter. And then in August, as, as people do in the state, Dudgeon went out of town and he told Stern, um, you know what, if you see something from the UW uh, that's addressed to me, open it because it's the response to your your application and then you know if you have a job on campus or not and so stern found such a letter and he opened it and the letter very clearly stated that they they were glad to hear from dudgeon because he had uw connections from way back and he was esteemed librarian and they said yes we'd, we'd like to offer stern a job but we don't hire jews uh and so stern went to uh like a jewish social club in milwaukee called the gimel dolled club And he pointed this out to him, and they kind of raised – and Dudgeon heard about it, and he was furious when he got back. Um, And the university said, okay, we'll take care of it. And then after a few months, uh, Gimel Daled went public with this, and they said the university is discriminating against its Jewish students, and it won't hire Jews to work there. And Jews across Wisconsin pay taxes to support this institution, and how dare they – and then the president of the university said, well, how dare the Gimel Club like raise this? We were going to solve it. We were totally there. We'd agreed to give. Of course, we're not going to deny Alex Stern a job. And the person who wrote the letter has been been reassigned somewhere else and so forth. So so there was some institutional discrimin- uh, discrimination, I, I think, a far greater source of that, a greater source is than for undergrads. And this is a real dilemma for UW students was housing that compared to peer institutions, compared to other schools in, in what was becoming known as the Big Ten at that time, UW built less on campus housing. So that meant that UW students coming to UW were uh, were kind of at the whims of private landlords um, with the scarce uh, housing uh, in state students got priority. So for Jewish students coming to UW from Milwaukee and the small towns around the state, um, yep, they could they could uh, apply and live in the dorms like like anyone else. For Jewish students from out of state, out of state students could get dorm space if there was if there were vacancies. Otherwise, they'd have to rent uh, from boarding houses, rent apartments, and so forth. Um, landlords in Madison, like their counterparts across much of the country, basically refused to rent to Jewish renters. So Jewish that's where Jewish students really faced a crunch that they could get into college, but then they had to scramble to find some place that uh, some place where they could rent an apartment and live there. Um, So that was a bigger kind of institutional anti-Semitism than on campus, except for uh, the medical school. Uh, Like medical schools in many parts of the country, um, UW's medical school uh, admitted very few Jewish students into, gosh, I I haven't been able to trace anything down in the archives, but anecdotal evidence suggests that was well into the 1950s, that the med school had like big time quotas on Jewish students. Um, and that kind of, in, in a lot of ways, that kind of extended to graduate school.
0: But, uh, but again, the- again, that's for our own good because no hospital would hire a Jew. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so why would we waste your time going to go medical school? Yes, if you're not going to exactly. get the job.
1: Right. So, so Jewish students who kind of kicked against that and asked a follow-up question, like, you know, what is this? That's the answer they'd get. Uh, and graduate school was another, was another kind of significant barrier. Uh, I mean, I went back and I could find, um, handfuls of Jewish Jewish grad students. Uh, but I'd say relatively few of them stuck around to complete the PhD. Uh, a lot of them either finished with a terminal master's or left at some point before that, uh, went to work for went to work for government, uh, went to work for uh, labor unions in the case of people in in programs like economics and political science. Um and, and there the logic was kind of the same, that uh, Jewish students who really uh, forged a bond with their undergrad professors at Wisconsin or elsewhere and wanted to emulate their professors by going on for the PhD and uh, going on to teach uh, history or English literature uh, or subjects like that. Um, even the handful of Jewish professors in those areas would consult, would would, uh, would, would advise their Jewish students. Um, great idea, but no, you're not going to get hired. You're just going to pour your money down a hole. You'll spend your twenties on this dream that's never going to come up. Go do something else. Um, so those were the those are the barriers that Jewish students uh, encountered. Uh, but the the admissions, I mean, the fact that Jewish students were admitted, I would say that UW uh, was a good deal more tolerant, a good deal more accepting, a good deal more welcoming uh, than many peer institutions in the twenties.
0: One of the examples of anti-Semitism you recount is re- really disturbing. Uh, John R. Commons, one of the legendary economics professor, John Commons, considered something of a socialist radical mentor to a generation of history-making economists, was an anti-Semite. And you talk about Selig Perlman, who's a socialist schoolboy from Bialystok, Poland, by way of Naples, Italy. It's an amazing story how he gets here. But talk a bit about Selig Perlman's career in the context of Richard T. Ely, John R. Commons, and most intriguingly, John R. Commons's
1: wife. Yeah. So, uh, so Commons, uh, so Commons was so Perlman, uh, as as you mentioned, uh, came here in I want to say like 1908. Uh, he was already he'd already been involved in the socialist movement in Russia, and then when he went away to Naples uh, to go to college, uh, in both spots he was a, he was a socialist. He met a couple of uh, vacationing American socialists who were in Naples. They were looking for a guide to show them around. Um, Portman served in that role. They were impressed with him. And they said, yeah, if you can come to Wisconsin sometime, we'd love to see you. So he kind of followed through on that. They they, they said that the university was a was a center of kind of the academic study of socialist economics. Uh, and so he came to Wisconsin in 1908, got his bachelor's degree in, I want to say like 1911. Um. And he was one of the, one of the uh, uh, active students in UW's Socialist Club. Uh, it, was the, uh, it was like an intercollegiate socialist association that Perlman was part of. Uh, from there, he worked for the federal government, uh, collecting labor statistics, doing a lot of survey work in New England, uh, in New England mill towns where he met his wife, uh, a member of the Jewish community of Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, and then he returned to Wisconsin to do his PhD in economics and actually then uh, scored the extremely rare feat of getting hired at the institution where he earned his doctorate. Um, so, uh, he had a very gradual path from grad student to, uh, to faculty. Uh, and so while he was on the faculty through the 1920s, I mean, he was really, as, as you mentioned, he was a pioneer in the study of labor economics, um, by the twenties, uh, seeing the outcome of the Russian revolution, his, his socialism kind of ebbed a little bit. He was more, more critical of that and more concerned about the path of the Soviet Union. Uh, but Commons anti-Semitism and, and Commons, wife in particular, um, Commons insisted on these, uh, there's like once a month Friday night dinners, uh, for the entire economics department at his house in university Heights. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Pearlman lived, uh, lived just outside of university Heights on, uh, on Rowley near Spooner. Um, so it was an easy walk to get there, but Perlman was, uh, was unique because he was like the, um he was like the one observant Jewish member of the faculty. There were always a handful of Jewish faculty during Perlman's time. Most of them were American born. Uh, Most of them maybe had set foot in a reformed temple at one point or another in their lives. Uh, But Perlman belonged to the Orthodox community and Orthodox synagogue in Madison. He had brought his parents from Bialystok to live with him who were not socialists, who were Orthodox Jews. Perlman kept a kosher home and, um, And his wife was was furious that he had to go to these. He couldn't have Shabbat dinner with his family. Uh, But Commons insisted on it, and Commons' wife insisted on it. She she didn't make any kind of accommodations in the menu. Um, And this is all from uh, the the source for this is uh, Perlman's son, Mark, uh, wrote an article for the journal Labor History in, I want to say, like the 1990s, uh, where it's like this long reminiscence of growing up as Selig Perlman's son. Mark Perlman was also an economist. Um, and, uh, and he talks about his life in Madison and kind of what he saw of his father's time on the faculty. And it seems to have just driven Perlman insane. I mean, he was, uh, Perlman, I think was, uh, adding to the, to the mystery of him and might be a fascinating figure for a biopic someday. Uh, Perlman seems to have be, been an intensely anxious guy, uh, just really tightly wound all the time. I, I had the privilege of talking to somebody who took a class with Perlman toward the end of his career, like in the mid fifties. And he said at that point, Perlman was known as he was a brilliant lecturer and would have just like like without notes. He would he would do like a full hour and do a tremendous job. Um, but Perlman could not look at his students. Perlman would look out. He, he insisted on teaching in a lecture hall that had windows. <laughs> and he would sit on the desk in the front of the room and he would just stare out the window the whole time. <laughs> And he would do this exquisite and complex and well organized lecture, but he couldn't look at his students. So he was a supremely quirky guy. But uh, but yeah, part of that was that Perlman also during his in the 1920s and 30s, especially, um, he was really like the he was like the go to mentor for Jewish students on campus with their eyes on on, on academic careers. Uh, the late Leon Epstein, uh, political scientist at UW, uh, undergrad student at UW in the 1930s. I think he graduated like in 40. I was a political science professor at the university, was a dean after that. Um, I, I spoke with Leon Epstein before he died, and he talked about his recollections of Perlman. And he was one of the students where he's getting into his senior year. He's trying to think about what next. And he said to Perlman, I really want to go into academia. I think I want to study political science. Uh, Perlman said, that's a horrible idea. Go to law school, set up a shingle, do like family law and criminal defense and so forth. You can make good money at that, you know, run for office, maybe somewhere, but under no circumstances go into higher education. And Epstein like didn't follow his advice. <laughs> he went to grad school, And he came back to Wisconsin and, and he, and he talked to Perlman afterwards and because uh, they were on, they would have overlapped on the faculty. Epstein would have taught here in the fifties when Perlman was still on the faculty. And, and, he, and he asked him like, okay, so I'm here. What do you think? And Perlman was just like, yeah, no, it's not going to last. I mean, he was like <laughs> really pessimistic. He's like, I'm not going to get you. Like don't count on anything. And he's like, I have tenure. What are you talking about? So yeah, that was,
0: that was Perlman. Now before Perlman moved to university Heights, he lived with his family in the Greenbush in the Bush edition. Um, uh, where most of the Jews in Madison lived at that time, there were two Orthodox synagogues on Mound Street within a block of each other. What was the relationship between the neighborhood of the Bush and Jewish students over the years?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I think, so just a a brief thing. Uh, So by the time the second Orthodox congregation went up, Perlman had already moved out to Rowley. That was 1939 is when Adas Yasharin goes in and that's the second one. And so by that point, Perlman had moved out of the neighborhood his parents were gone um, but like in the 1920s, yeah, he lived. Uh, well, he lived uh, on Brandle, so sort of the edge of Greenbush. The uh, relationship between the students who were there uh, was that, yeah, it was a place where I'd say more traditionally minded Jewish students lived, uh, and also Jewish students who had grown up in Madison would live there. So um, I mean, you know, a, a lot of what's left of the Greenbush neighborhood is, and and even the the site of the entire neighborhood, it's like easily commutable distance to UW. You know, you're looking at about, a, you know, even if you're taking classes like out on the ag campus, it's maybe half an hour walk. Um, so. Uh, so, yeah, so Jewish students who had grown up in Madison, uh, like their counterparts everywhere, would would save a few bucks on on lodging and so forth and continue living with their parents. Uh, but also from time to time, uh, Jewish students from elsewhere, if they had cousins who lived in the green bush or if they were from deeply Orthodox backgrounds and uh, the, the parents didn't want their kids living in a, in a traif environment, uh, they'd find people in the Greenbush neighborhood who had an extra room they could rent out um, and, uh, and let them stay there. Um, one of the, one of the examples, an early example of a commuter student like that was um, the uh, novelist and journalist, Elias Tabankin. Uh, he was related to the, uh, the Kalin family of Madison. The Kalins and the Tabankins were cousins. Um, the Kalens, of course, are one of the oldest Jewish families in the city. Um, certainly uh, the late Clarence Kalin, I know, was on WORT a lot. Uh, he was a beloved figure by a lot of people. And so, uh, yeah, Elias Tabankin would have been like Clarence Kalin's first cousin once removed, I want to say. It was some relationship like that. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Elias Tabankin lived, uh, lived in the Greenbush, lived on Brooks Street. Um, and uh, and community campus. Uh, he graduated. He was there in the very first years of the 20th century. He entered in like 1902, and he stuck around till uh, till 1906, um, or 1900 and 06 because he got a master's degree. Um, so yeah, Tabankin wrote about his experience. He wrote this uh, novel named uh, "Witty Arrives," which is a semi-autobiographical novel of what we now call a first-generation uh, college student at a major midwestern university. In uh, in the town of I think that one is set in the town of Springwater, uh, is where that one is, and it's got in Springwater it's about a three hour train ride from Chicago, and it's got a couple of lakes and a big university in it. So like do the math.
0: And, um, and the and the amazing thing is that Witty in the book is is this is a Jewish student, but Emil. E. Witte was, was, you know, from Monrovia, Wisconsin, from yeah. Ebenezer, Wisconsin. He's, an, he's the guy who wrote the Social Security Act. Right, he's right. a member of the Socialist Club. And Tobenkin writes, gives his char- his Jewish character the name of Ed Whitty.
1: Yeah, gives him the name Whitty. Well, and part of that was that, um, like, Tobenkin had this, uh, it, it, it comes up in interviews that he did, and it's in his novels. He was, like, obsessed with name changes, so Witty in the novel is born Witkowski. Um, and so Witty is the name that he takes when he comes to America. It's what the family takes when yeah. he comes to America. Tabankin himself, I mean, Tabankin was always Tabankin. Uh, there was a, an interview he did for a magazine in like the mid-20s when he had another book out um, where the headline was, why I didn't change my name. <laughs> so he was like very, very attached to his name. But the, but the characters, there's... Um, Another book he wrote uh, where there's a – the protagonist is named Wasserman originally, and he comes to the town of Lincoln, which is a state capital that's got a couple of lakes and a big university in it. So it's another kind of autobiographical thing. Um, And so Wasserman becomes Waterman, and and he's kind of – and he's like this flawed hero of the story. He's the protagonist, but he makes some bad decisions that he regrets by the end of it. And so Tobenkin, so I think Whitty. there, I mean, I'm not sure, as you were talking about that, I'm trying to think about like, I think I think Emil Witty was at UW later, but by the time Tobenkin was writing. So I don't know how, how intentional that was, but I do know that, that Tobenkin was like obsessed with the issue of changing names that, the, that comes up all the time with him.
0: Jews at the Mass and Campus for the to, to people today you say UW Jews and and politics and they immediately uh, sort of a, uh, identify them with radical politics leftists and radical politics sure. that's an identity that goes back to the turn of the last century we're talking about a lot of russian socialists coming over here 120 years ago is 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 that where the the identity of of radical intellectual Jews from a foreign place really starts to take hold.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a really small trace. I mean, so in addition to to Perlman who we talked about uh, to Tabankin, who I think was in an even earlier socialist club that I've struggled to find any, any solid documentation of, uh, but there, there was, there was one here, there was some kind of socialist club that had some kind of university connection or in, or university people involved in it, like before Perlman showed up like in 1904 when Tobankin was a student. Um, so there, there's this kind of socialist presence. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, in Perlman's generation, let's not, you know, because I, you know, we're on WORT and I know the audience, let's not conflate socialists and anarchists, please because we'd be leaving out the story of Anna mercy, um, who was a radical dentist from New York who came here for, uh, a bachelor's degree in, uh, in economics, uh, graduating like in 1911, Um, she contributed articles to, uh, Emma Goldman's magazine, a newspaper, mother earth. Um, she wrote a a bachelor's thesis on the IWW. Um, so a Jewish anarchist, the, the folks we don't hear about that, you know, as often as their better publicized socialist counterpart. Um, but yeah, to the broader point, yeah, there's, I mean, it's, I don't think it's the, it's an interesting point because it's not an unbroken chain. I mean, the, you know, Perlman, of course, the old Socialist Club group, I mean, he hung out forever. Um, but over the course of his lifetime, I mean, he had he went further and further away from socialism. I mean, he was he was very critical of the Soviet Union um, during the 1930s. He steered clear of the factional fighting between like kind of Trotskyist groups and, and, and Stalinist groups. Um, After World War II, the, you know, the kind of communist elements of the of the 1948 version of the progressive party, permanent, nothing at all to do with that. As far as I can tell, it became kind of a a, a down the line Democrat on on votes on voting. Um, So, yeah, he's no it's not like he's like carrying the, you know, carrying the red banner on uh, after about like 1922. Um, but, yeah, the UW always had that. I mean, and, and it's not exclusively a Jewish thing either. I mean, as, the, as later generations uh, made it really clear, like the, the film The War at Home uh, and the role of, of homegrown Wisconsin radicals um, of no discernible Jewish background, I think, is a really critical part of the story. That I, I'd say it's more a result of uh, the UW has always, has always encouraged you know, that, that sifting and winnowing ideas, as cliche as it sounds, from the 1890s. Uh, the UW is obviously taking that extremely seriously um, and uh, to the point of, of entertaining seriously unpopular uh, people of, uh, of, of, of radical persuasions throughout time. Um, so that, uh, you know, in, in times like the 1940s, um, when there was a general crackdown on radicalism across the country, I think that's how the UW had one of the only college chapters the Labor Youth League, uh, Communist Party labor organization uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, it was in that broader tradition, and that uh, given the association between Jews and radical politics in the U.S., um, that's what made it really uh, really a combination.
0: We're talking with Jonathan Pollack. His new book is Wisconsin, The New Home of the Jew, 150 Years of Jewish Life at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You can uh, download a PDF at cjs.wiskeedu. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the university was one of the few Universities that allowed communists to meet during the war. And it seems to me that it was Jews who sustained those communist organizations here at at the university.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. uh, I mean, I would say I would say that that the communist organizations on campus from the, the rosters I was able to look at were disproportionately but not exclusively Jewish. Um, that there were a fair number of Jewish students in there. Uh, I was interested to see that at at several points, uh, because the organizations, I mean, it's like every year or two organizations change names and and so forth. Um, But the organizations uh, had to, uh, campus organizations had to submit rosters of members to the university in order to like have access to campus facilities and get campus funding and stuff like that. Um, And so on the, uh, on the rosters, occasionally the uh, the deans of student life uh, would kind of like take note of where they came from, uh, and I didn't see that for other student orgs. Uh, they noticed like, oh, they're from Brooklyn, New York, and they're from from White Plains, New York, and so forth. Um, and that other student groups didn't get that same kind of treatment. Uh, on a couple of occasions, uh, they even highlighted, they're like, oh, look at all the Jews in this organization. So, um, but also, I mean, there were other times where, yeah, the the leader of the group on campus was. You know, somebody with a Norwegian last name from Lacrosse. Um, so it was not, you know, it's, it's not a perfect correlation. There, there always was this kind of uh, indigenous, you know, this uh, Wisconsin um, uh, uh, radicalism that popped up. Uh, but yeah, and, and and they were also are also real visible there. I mean, the one of the stories I tried to get and, and didn't, uh, and, and and was not able to, to find through the archives. Um, was a story of, like, right-wing movements on, on, on campus and, and Jewish participation therein. Um, that, um, that there's definitely, you know, other scholars have looked at uh, Jews and, uh, and American conservative politics uh, from, the, from the 1930s onward. Um, and I looked for counterparts, and it seems like either there were fewer Jewish students who were part of those groups, which I think is likely. Uh, and also those groups didn't save their stuff. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, that I think partially accounts for uh, the volumes of knowledge we have about left wing movements in the United States is that left wing movements tend to be fastidious about (laughs) leaving meeting minutes and posters and communications and and everything, everything, everything. And conservative movements are like, now we're good. Dump. Um, And it just doesn't get you know, we can't get access to it
0: we've got about uh 15 eight, 18 minutes left i want to talk a bit about hillel and go back. there's this interesting thing going on on campus in the early 1920s it's the heyday of the, the first big wave of Jewish students, it is also the heyday of the interfraternity fraternity Ku Klux Klan. Now, again, these are not guys in sheets and hoods. This was an elite fraternity, but they named themselves after guys in sheets and hoods. And these are the biggest men on campus. This is Walter Frouchy, Porter Butts, football star Red Weston, future Mass and School Superintendent Philip Falk, the actor we now know as Frederick March. This is also the time that Hillel, that that the B'nai B'rith starts Hillel on campus. And the thing I really find interesting is that the University of Wisconsin had the second Ku Klux Klan on campus and the second Hillel on campus, and that the University of Illinois had the first in both regard. Oh, wow! Okay. Was it because of of all the clan and other anti-Semitic activity that B'nai Brith started Hillel here?
1: That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't seen evidence that it is. I mean, I've looked into I've looked at B'nai Brith publications and looked at kind of the birth of Hillel, um, and what I found was that in the in uh, the B'nai Brith magazine, um, in the well, so for just to back up a little bit more. Um, You know, there's the there's the uh, uh, sort of story uh, that uh, Abby Hoffman used to tell uh, where where someone would ask him, uh, at what point do do Jewish people believe that a fetus becomes viable? This conversation about abortion. And, and in response to that, uh, Abby Hoffman said, when it, attain, when it gets its master's degree.
0: No. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's
1: this, so this kind of idea, you know, the, the, the base of that joke uh, is to say that, yeah, the college is like an automatic. It's just like a basic to function in American Jewish society. And it's, it's a serious exaggeration, obviously. Um, but there's no ground for that whatsoever in American Jewish life before like 1920. But before 1920, absolutely, there were Jewish students going to college. But for the most part, uh, many of them went for just like a year or two to learn a few more things that could help their family run existing businesses or enterprises. Um, and that was the end of it. And, and a vast majority of Jewish students didn't go at all. A lot of Jewish students didn't complete high school before 1920. So, uh, so it's the 1920s where large numbers of Jewish students start going to college. Um, and so what happened there was that you know, colleges, as I kind of as we kind of touched on with our discussion about Harvard earlier, American colleges, for the most part, were like really Protestant institutions. Um, even in colleges that weren't founded by specific Protestant denominations, the kind of default setting of American higher education was Protestant, with the exception of, of Catholic universities. So um, for like immigrant generation American Jews, uh, whose children were either born in Europe and came here as little kids and and uh, at, at a point where they lost the the accents of the country they came from or for kids who were born in the United States. Like college, at least looking at this B'nai B'rith magazine, was a source of great anxiety that just like what's going to happen to our kids who go? Um, you know, are they going to remain Jewish? Can they remain Jewish in a, in a college environment? You know, on the one hand, college promises these economic benefits, promises uh, some freedom over your work time, a a chance to be your own boss that you don't get if you're in a sweatshop or you don't get if you're working in a store. On the other hand, maybe you're not going to be Jewish anymore. So B'nai B'rith was really concerned with, like, maintaining Jewishness. Um, I mean, the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which was part of B'nai B'rith, going back to 1915— Absolutely, the ADL was concerned with combating the Klan, but I have I didn't really see a whole lot of overlap between like the ADL and Hillel. Like I didn't see ADL people weighing in on the desirability of Hillel to um to oppose the Klan. Uh, so as I what I've seen of Hillel's purpose, both in Illinois and at Wisconsin, was really I mean it gets back to this idea of home that I that I that I titled my book, that Hillel would be Uh, a place for Jewish students to call home, Uh, that there were also uh, Hillel was, was designed to be like a sort of um, parallel institution to uh, Cardinal Newman clubs for Catholic students to student congregations of most uh, Baptist of of most Protestant denominations. Um, You know, to a way that's almost unimaginable now uh, religious life was a huge part of campus um, the, uh, first congregational church, uh, across from Bree Stevens and old university in Breeze, like that was a major student center. They had all kinds of student activities going on. Um, and synagogues did not effectively develop like student congregations. The reform movement attempted one of those in the late teens and early twenties. There was one that, that launched at UW for about three years, but it fizzled because Jewish students were Jewish students were interested in Jewishness in the sense of like an ethnic identity and, and a, and a cultural identity, but they weren't interested in going to synagogue. They weren't interested in going to temple. Um, So synagogues were ill-equipped to deal with that. B'nai B'rith, which was always an organization that was like really ecumenical in the Jewish world. It was, you know, B'nai B'rith's idea was like, we don't care what kind of Jewish you are. If you're Jewish, you're welcome here. And that attitude, B'nai B'rith saw an opportunity to expand that kind of thinking on college campuses um, and so I'd say the parallels between the Klan and Hillel at both, at this point at least, I'm tempted to say it's more of a, a coincidence than it is like a direct reaction one to the other. Because uh, in the Klan also, in the certainly in Madison, uh, Jews were far down the concern of the Klans, way behind Italians. Um, I mean, the actions of the greater Madison clan are, are really focused on looking at, at Greenbush, as we talked about before. But thinking about Greenbush is the Italian neighborhood in Madison, uh, Jewish, the Jewish community in Madison was so small, it was was far to the back uh, of the idea, uh, of the ideas behind the clan here.
0: we got about, about 10 minutes left. I want to talk just a little bit about the role that Max Ticton and Richard Winograd, yeah, for the sure. di- directors of Hillel, played. It, very... Political role and very left, very liberal left identities in terms of where they put Hillel on the political spectrum.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, so Ticton, uh Ticton left in like uh, 1961, 62, um, and it's really and his leaving. I, I end one of my chapters with uh, with, with his response after. Uh, Jewish students at Hillel were part of the uh, very early protests in solidarity with the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and Tickton was foursquare in favor. He said that's a that's a beautiful thing. And Tickton himself, after Hillel, went on and became uh, really kind of a radical, both in, in American politics generally and especially within American Jewish politics. I uh, was active in an organization called uh, Breira, uh, operating out of Washington, D.C. in the 1970s, uh, an organization really committed to... Um, uh, to recognizing a uh, an independent Palestinian state, uh, reconciliation between Israel and Palestinians, um, and uh, and and kind of a kind of a radical in American Jewish circles, uh, Dick Winograd um, was uh, was also he's another kind of fascinating character. Uh, the people I know who were who were at UW when he was Hill director I just think the world of him. Uh, he was also a, a UW product. He went to college here, and he seems to he seems to have done everything he seems to have been involved in like every possible activity he was in one of the jewish fraternities he was um an officer in the very tiny student league for industrial democracy chapter on campus of course uh slid became sds after 1962 um he was active in the intercollegiate zionist association chapter uh, at uw um and then he went to rabbinical school and came back as Hillel director. Uh, and so Winograd was super supportive of, of Hillel's part in the, in the civil rights movement. Um, Hillel, uh, uh, uh organized, uh, and Hillel kind of built on in civil rights movement ties to build support for Jewish causes. Um, Hillel had early, um, uh, demonstrations and events in solidarity with the Soviet Jews who were trying to get out of the USSR. Um, and Winograd was able to get like, Campus left left wing organizations and the Young Americans for Freedom and the fraternities and everybody to sign on to these things with him. Um, he brought in uh, people like Evan Stark um, to do readings at Hillel. Stark did an evening of like Allen Ginsberg poetry <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so he um, he brought in the uh, and, and other parts of the counterculture. He brought in the uh, the um, uh, Kentucky Fried Theater guys. Uh, to do like beginning of the year programming for Hillel, so this kind of kind of lefty countercultural improv stuff is like the welcome to Hillel thing in like 1970s. So he was and, and he wanted Hillel to be a place of uh, of discussion, and he wanted and and I think this is kind of it's a very like Wisconsin Hillel thing for him to have done that in the same spirit uh, that UW's traditional um, outlook. Uh, was to was to bring in all ideas and let them get argued on the merits. Um, Winograd would bring in like Arab students after the sixty-seven war and say, "Yeah, let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about the Middle East." Um, so he was really he was like had this really broad vision of what what Hillal could be.
0: Uh, on the sixty-seven war, I had not really f- focused on the fact that the six-day war in the Middle East came exactly in the middle between the first Dow demonstration in February 67 and the second Dow demonstration in October 67, stark in the middle. And that war generated a lot of sympathy among the new left for the Palestinians, which created a split between most American liberals, liberal American Jews and the new left. But then we see that Bob Cohen, who is one of the leaders of the Dow demonstrations, is an absolute Zionist hawk. Yeah. How did that whole dynamic play out
1: here? I think it's, I mean, I like the 67 war, I mean, that was one of the areas where Wisconsin I think, was real different from a lot of other places. And I think part of it was the I think part of what accounts for that is the like coalition work that that Jewish students and Hillel did uh, during that time relative to other places uh, that because Hillel was active in these broader struggles and that and that it signed on to the struggles of other groups um, and that kind of local politics mitigated against some of the splits that went on elsewhere. By the early 1970s and certainly by the Yom Kippur War in 1973, yeah, those splits at UW in the left and the, the kind of anti-Israel turn of the American left and, and even uh, left wing Jewish students, I think was a whole lot more evident. But I think UW had less of that than than uh, Hillel's Hillel chapters at other schools, uh, because this coalitional work. Because Hillel saw itself as as having a place um, in in the American New Left, and and they were proud of that. And they want and rather than kind of questioning Jewish students who were who are way out in the vanguard of the left. You know, Hillel said, "Hey, do you want to come in and do a thing? Like we're we're here for you. What do you want to do?" Like, okay, yeah, Beat Poetry Night, solid, great, we'll set it up, we'll brew some coffee, we're good.
0: Is, is, is that why, for at least a period, there was not a great split between the Black students and the Jews? Because in 1969, Hillel had supported the Black Studies strike, and, and that sort of helped force push off the, the split think, between Blacks and Jews?
1: I, I think so, yeah. I think that definitely had a part. Um, I think their willingness to be there for other student groups and to support other student struggles... Um, caused uh, uh, chapters of of other national student movements and other ideas to kind of look different here at Wisconsin. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, as I was going through those documents, as I was looking through like the Hillel papers during the time of the Black Strike, uh, I couldn't help but think that. I thought, yeah, this is making a difference. And then by the the early 1970s, as the, you know, Black students still faced discrimination on campus and um, and as, uh, uh, like the black Panthers took on a more explicitly like pro-Palestinian turn and so forth, um, later generations of black students, like they, they weren't around in 1969. They didn't know what Hill did in the black strike. Um, and so that mattered less and they were more critical, uh, of Israel and by extension, uh, supporters of Israel on campus. But yeah, in the late 1960s, I think that, that coalition work was huge. Um, I mean, among other things, you know, by 1970, Hillel was like the, um, it served as like, a, like a medical center for people who were tear gassed. Um, and Hillel paid a price for that. Uh, Madison police threw tear gas through the windows, uh, ripped down flyers and so forth. Uh, my friend Bill Schwab was, uh, you know, was, was arrested for, for posting flyers. Um, but, uh, but Hillel like stuck it out. Like they were committed to being part of this, uh, you know, this kind of all-purpose-like center for Jewish activism on campus.
0: Yeah, which adds a certain irony to the fact that cops are sometimes called pigs. So we've got these these trafe officers who uh-huh. are throwing tear gas yeah. in, in, into the uh, police, in, into Hillel. We've got just a couple of minutes. I want to pass over, n- no temporal nice. pun intended, pass Very over the perfect. fact that by the late 60s, the state legislature and the regents are getting so fed up with all these out-of-state Jews that they actually reimpose formal uh, enrollment uh, curbs, not on religion, but on out-of-state students. Again, out-of-state being a, uh, uh, a marker for Jews. But I want to go to the state of campus relations, say we've only got about three or four minutes left, and and talk about the new stereotypes, and particularly the Coasty song, uh, by these guys who developed the 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 Scani, uh, clothing uh, line, and whether or not the Coasty song is anti-Semitic, and and how the Coasty song was really your big break into becoming published.
1: Yeah, no, so uh, yeah, so I uh, I'm I, I'm real familiar with that. I had so that was like uh, I want to say like 2009, 2010, somewhere in there um yeah so before that so in 2001 um i published an article in the academic journal american jewish history about uh uh, jewish life on campus in the 20s and 30s around the time of the first hillel plan activity on campus anti-semitism etc now as that article came out uh you know i was teaching at matc so my time is really like teaching uh all the time Uh, my kids were small and i wanted to be with them so i didn't have much of a research agenda out there but i had this one article and um, my colleague at UW, uh, Jordan Rosenblum, uh, teaches, teaches intro to Judaism there, um, had his, uh, Jordan is like, uh, he's a specialist in the evolution of the Talmud, um, especially on, uh, on, on the evolution of Kashrut. He's uh, he's, and he's hilarious. Uh, so his specialty is like Judaism as it was like 1500, 2000 years ago. And so he had his TA, he asked his TA, he's like, you know, I do nothing with the 20th century Find me something unlike America and the 20th century my students will relate to. And so a student comes to him and says, well, hey, I hear I found this article <laughs> about Jewish life at Wisconsin, in the 20s and 30s. And Jordan's like, perfect. So it became part of his course. It was like the last reading of the semester. And then uh, this coasty song blew up. And uh, uh, my colleague, Tony Michaels, who does American Jewish history, was on sabbatical. So he wasn't available. And so Jordan starts getting all these phone calls um and they're asking is this anti-semitic and so forth and jordan didn't have tenure yet he'd been here a couple of years he's like i don't know uh maybe and he's going on about like well it's maybe in line of like jewish life at uw and the history of that and they're like oh tell us more and he's like okay listen i don't know anything about this but i'm looking at this article and apparently the guy who wrote it teaches at matc or he did did in 2001 try and find him so then i started getting calls i talked to the milwaukee journal sentinel about this, and that, I was invited to a panel that UW had on this on this whole coasty issue, um, and it's from that that I was uh, the Jewish study Center for Jewish Studies made me an honorary scholar. Um, so it really it all kind of comes back to that.
0: And, and, and for those who haven't seen it, the, the concept of the coasty song is my East Coast Jewish honey. And the, the, like some of the images are a pair of white panties with the phrase Jewish American princess and the star of David in blue uh, on the front of the panties. So I think the question, is the coasty song anti-Semitic? The answer would be yes.
1: It is yes. Yeah. yeah. It is oh,
0: yes. Well, that is all the time we have. My thanks again to Jonathan Pollack. The book is Wisconsin: The New Home of the Jew, 150 Years of Jewish Life at the UW-Madison. You can find it as a free download at cjs.wisc.edu. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, Nicholas Hayes for a conversation about his new book, Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House: How an Omission Transformed the Architect's Legacy. It's from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press, and it is a fascinating and revealing account of his discovery and rehabilitation of an authentic Frank Lloyd Wright American Systems-built house in the Milwaukee suburb of Shorewood. And by the way, that will be our first show of two during the upcoming Fall Pledge Drive. Nudge, nudge, hint, hint. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman and all of us here at Madison BookBeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.